All right, uh, let me pray one more time. God, as we sang a moment ago, we uh, want to experience your presence. We long for that. We long for our heavenly home, even here on earth, even now, and tastes of that. And so uh, we ask that you would give us that, not just through our worship and prayer, but uh, through our fellowship and through our time around and in your word. Uh, imprint upon us uh, things from eternity. Help us to uh, see and embrace your grace given to us. I pray and ask that as my words are true to your word, that they be taken to heart. If my words stray or deviate in any way, shape, or form from your uh, holy and eternal word, may they be quickly forgotten. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning we're in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 5, beginning at verse 1. Mark is, you may know, the earliest or the first of the four canonical Gospels in the Bible. Uh, And in that way or for that reason, in some ways, it's the rawest and the most uh, unrefined of the four Gospels, but also uh, sometimes the most exciting, the most riveting in some ways, and you may get a little sense of that uh, this morning in this passage. We're beginning at chapter 5, verse 1. Listen closely, uh, pay close attention. This is the Word of God. Chapter 5, verse 1. They, Jesus and his disciples, they went across uh, the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. This is the Sea of Galilee, um, also known as the Great Lake or the Lake Tiberias, the Sea of Tiberias. They went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an impure spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day the tombs and night and day among the tombs and in the hills he would cry out and cut himself with stones. So impure spirits, unclean spirits, evil spirits, we may even call them demons. We're having this way with man, this man. They were having a field day with him. They had probably for years by this point. Verse 6. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of Jesus. He shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want from me, Jesus? Son of the Most High God. In God's name, don't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, Come out of this man, you impure spirit. Then Jesus asked him, what is your name? What is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many, one speaking for many. Uh, A legion was a group of several thousand Roman soldiers. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. And again, these unclean spirits were having a field day destroying this man's life, continuing to torture him. These unclean spirits were the ones who were doing the torturing. This is what evil spirits do. This is what they thrive on still today. Don't send us away from here. They knew that Jesus had power. They knew that Jesus had authority. They knew what Jesus could do. Verse 11. A large herd of pigs was feeding on that nearby hillside. The demon, sensing that Jesus was about to act on this man's behalf, sensing that Jesus was about to save or rescue or heal this man, The demons begged Jesus. Jesus gave them, uh, begged Jesus, send us among the pigs, allow us to go into them. 
Jesus gave them permission, and the impure spirits came out of the man and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. For the evil spirits' mission, in some ways, mission accomplished. The evil spirits did to the pigs in a moment, what they'd been working on for maybe years in this man's life. Verse 14. Those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and the countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And why were they afraid? People are always afraid when confronted with a power that they don't understand, a power to do things that they don't understand, a power that operates by an unknown entity to radically change the world as they've known it, the world as they know it, and how things operate. The laws of nature, one might even say. Verse 16, those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs as well. Then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave the region. Leave our region, leave us alone. They didn't care about the man who had been healed. They didn't care about him at all. They had excommunicated him from their community years ago. They didn't care about him in any way, shape, or form. They only cared about their pigs. They only cared about their assets, their livelihood, their vocations, their jobs, their income. Please just leave us, Jesus. Enough is enough. Maybe that was a nice thing for you to do. Be gone. And Jesus accommodates their wish, as he often does. And now we get to the verse that will sort of be our primary focus this morning, verse 18. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Jesus did not let him. But Jesus said, go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he's had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis, this group of ten cities, how much Jesus had done for him. And all the people were amazed. Amazed. Which is a favorite word, especially of Mark, of all the gospel writers, but especially of Mark, to describe people's response in a variety of situations and contexts. To Jesus, amazed. You may remember that Mark's gospel from the beginning of that gospel way back when, when we went through it, uh, his mission in writing uh, was to show Jesus to be the Messiah and the Son of God. Or as Mark records here in verse 7, Son of the Most High God. And for people to know and worship and follow Jesus, this is Mark's mission. This is what he wants. And along the way, the reader gets to be exposed to the heart of Jesus, the character of Jesus, the heart of God, which is so beautiful and attractive. Mark doesn't tell his readers why Jesus and his disciples embark on a boat ride to the western, eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee, to the non-Jewish shore, why they left the Jewish area in the west and traveled to the less Jewish or non-Jewish shore of the Sea of Galilee in the east. The lake as a whole was a very much the center of Galilean life, of Galilean business. Many of Jesus' disciples had made their livings on the lake before following Jesus. Mark doesn't tell us why Jesus and his disciples journey across the sea that day. And yet nothing seems to happen as accident or by accident with Jesus. He's never surprised. 
Upon landing on the far shore, the eastern shore, the non-Jewish, the Gentile shore of the Sea of Galilee, this truly madman comes out of the tombs, out of nowhere, and approaches Jesus, probably in rags, probably disheveled, probably scary in some ways, seemingly, as Mark describes him, strong as a horse, brutal. Maybe he's, uh, Mark tells us he's screaming, yelling, he may be mumbling to himself too. You can imagine or envision what that experience might have been like for Jesus' disciples, at least. When one encounters such a person uh, at, along the sidewalk or out in the public, this morning it was me, as it probably has been for you plenty of times, uh, at a stoplight. Someone walking in front of the stoplight yesterday, uh, some people walking at a stoplight south of here, uh, asking for things from cars. This morning, a guy just crossing the road, mumbling to himself, disheveled. What do we do with those people? We often avoid eye contact, being unsure what to do. We're not sure how to respond. We want to avoid the interaction, the relationship because we don't know what to do with them, or we're sometimes afraid. But this man speaks to Jesus. Jesus immediately engages him. Again, we get to see the character of Jesus, the heart of Jesus, the heart of God, who never turns his eyes away, as we often do, never avoids a relationship. The man speaks to Jesus. What do you want with me, Jesus? The voice says, the voice of allegiance. What do you want with me? Jesus says, come out of the man. Come out of the man. Leave me alone, Jesus. And everything about the scene would have been offensive to good and faithful Jews. Unclean land, unclean region, tombs that were considered unclean, a man possessed by an unclean spirit. And then there's the, the, this thing that we have to be aware of in this context. In the ancient Jewish world, Jewish culture, when a person who is ceremonially, ceremonially clean or pure came in, as Jesus was, came into contact with someone who was not ceremonially clean or pure, the way that transaction went was that the person who was clean going into the interaction becomes unclean. And has to go through this seven-day or 30-day process of becoming clean again according to the religious way and the law of Moses. But with Jesus, everything is different. Jesus, the clean one, comes in contact with this one who is in a variety of ways unclean. Instead of Jesus becoming unclean, that man becomes clean. The transferring is exactly the opposite with Jesus, the Holy One. Notice the care that Jesus has for the man, the care that Jesus exhibits for the man. This man has done nothing to this point to deserve that care, nothing to earn his being healed, nothing to deserve being rescued, nothing to deserve or merit being saved. It is grace and it is all grace. Mark doesn't even tell us that the man had faith. Did you notice that? I mean, sort of the legions know who Jesus is. The demon possessing this man knew who Jesus was. They knew, but Mark doesn't tell us that the man himself knew, much less that he had faith or saving faith in Jesus. Nothing uh, about him at that point that indicates that he trusts Jesus. But Jesus rescues him anyway. Isn't that interesting? 
doesn't follow our formula. Yes, people are saved by grace through faith, as Paul articulated in his letter to the Ephesians, but Jesus can operate even when faith is feeble or undeveloped or lacking or even completely absent. We see this throughout Mark's gospel. Go all the way back to chapter 2. The man lowered through the roof. There's no indication, even though Jesus eventually heals him and forgives him, that he had any faith himself at all. His friends seemed to have some, some kind of faith, undeveloped as it was. Jesus can do what Jesus wills to do, with or without faith, when uh, explicit faith is present and even when it isn't. Therefore, we should be careful not to box in Jesus into our formulas and into our sort of required steps or here are the way things have to happen. Because that's not the way it is with Jesus. Now we have this man who for years was in bondage not just to chains or by chains, but to unclean spirits and to unclean spirits, evil spirits, demons. And now that Jesus has rescued this man, where does he go? What's next? Jesus and his disciples are now climbing into their boat. My, in my mind, they never got too far from the boat. Here comes the madman screaming, busted chains, and they're like, we're just going to stay right here. Jesus, you go talk to him. But now they're ready to go. The people have said, leave. Jesus accommodates them. He's moving back to the boat. What about me, Jesus? I'm going with you. Says the now healed man. I'm going with you. Of course he wants to go with Jesus. Any family that the man had had in the past had long since stopped caring for him over time, unable to control him, unsure of what to do with him, and probably embarrassed by him, an embarrassment to their family. They had allowed him to drift out of their household if they had not also contributed to that distancing, that process. The community from which he'd come had probably excommunicated him, his town, his village. Nobody wants people like that around. They pushed him to the edge of town. They relegated him to the tombs where he wouldn't bother anyone, at least not anyone who was living. And so judged and feared and misunderstood and shamed and rejected and abandoned, all of his human connections had been severed. And there goes Jesus, the man who had just rescued him from the pit. Yes, the rescued man now wants to go with Jesus. Of course he does. There's nothing for him left in the region of the Gerasenes. Nowhere else for him to go. Forsaken by family, friends, community, culture, neighbors. Jesus has suddenly in a moment become his life. His breath, his sustenance, his hope. Everything. He's got nothing except Jesus, in whom he's got everything. Jesus, I'm going with you. May I go? Of course he expects Jesus to say yes, and Jesus says, no. No. It's interesting, in different contexts, Jesus responds to different people in this way, in different ways, and in this context, Jesus' message is no. And Jesus said, quote, Go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. To which the man may have first responded, What? No! You invited all of your other disciples to follow you, 
to go with you to get into the discipleship. Peter, Andrew, come on, follow me. Leave your boats, leave your nets. Come and follow me. James, John, leave your nets. Come and follow me. We're going to have a great time. You can learn from me. I can be your rabbi. We can just sort of do all this great stuff, ministry. Come with me. Follow me. Ugh. This man must have th- this is not fair. How often do we go to the fair thing? You've invited all the others to follow you, to go with you, to be your students, to learn from you. I want to do that too. He couldn't go back to his family. He didn't want to go back to that family that had abandoned him, that had left him, that had left him alone with the demons. What kind of family is that? And Jesus, the merciful one, the merciful one says, go. And tell them everything. And the man went. And he told. And Mark tells us that all the people, which must have included his family and his former associates, the people who had rejected him, the people who had ostracized him, the people who had shamed him, the people who had wanted, wanted nothing to do with him, the people who just left him to the tombs, were amazed. They were amazed at what had happened to him but not with him. They were amazed not by him or with him, but amazed at what the Lord had done in his life. So now we insert ourselves into the story. God's done many wonderful things in our lives, so many magnificent, beautiful, in some cases breathtaking things. Maybe we have not been filled with demons and then then been exercised of them, freed from them in such dramatic ways. But God has still been so good to us, to every one of us, whether we know it or not, whether we have faith or not, whether we're conscious of it or not, every one of us, every one of you, God has been so good to us. Has he not? Of course, God's job is not to be good to us. God doesn't exist for us. God's not some giant Santa Claus or butler in the sky or in the heavens, whose job or role it is to wait on us. But God does good. God does do good. God is good. And so from God, in God's character, flows all sorts of goodness. Jesus said, like the sunshine, like the rain, like free vitamin D for everyone. <laughs> flows from God because God's good. Every good and perfect gift comes from our Father above, to the good and to the bad alike, to every sort of person. But God has been particularly good to the people, including us, in and through Jesus, who heals, through Jesus who redeems, through Jesus who reconciles, through Jesus who guides, through Jesus who saves. God has been particularly good and gracious to people in Christ. Not because anyone's merited it or been good ourselves, themselves. We know that. And Jesus says to us what he had said to the formerly demon-possessed man, go, go, go. And tell your people, and all of us have different your people, we have our people, whether they're ostracized family or not, whatever included in that big circle of our people, 
Jesus says to every one of us, go and tell your people what the Lord has done for you and how the Lord has had mercy on you. Go and tell. And just like the formerly demon-possessed man, though for different reasons, many Christians today respond inwardly, if not outwardly, no! Don't ask me to do that. It's the E word. No! When the churches have evangelism classes, no one shows up. Please know, which is crazy because the Lord's been so good to us, but we have our reasons for resisting Jesus' directive, for just wanting and preferring to go with Jesus and to hang out with Jesus in the discipleship, which sounds so good. Because in the discipleship, there's also fellowship, which is Greek for food. It's not really. I'm just, I just made that up. We'd rather hang out on the mountaintop with Jesus than embark on a journey into the trenches that may be fraught with challenges. We'd rather be among people whom we know will accept our message and who already agree with our faith rather than with those who won't and don't. We prefer acceptance over possible rejection. It's just human nature. We're all like that. We believe that our message out there will not be welcomed, that it will not be well received, and there is some truth to that, sure. In Mark 5, the demon-possessed man's healing had resulted in the loss of the town's pigs, so they weren't necessarily eager or even receptive to more of Jesus. In our day and age, the church, Jesus' people, have been known out there for there are stuffiness and judgmentalism and hypocrisy and all the scandals that we read about in the news. Yes, and all of that's tragic, but none of that negates the fact that God himself is good, that Jesus is good, that God has been good to us, and that God desires to be known all over the world where he wants his glory to fill God wants to be known for his goodness and to pour more and more and more of that goodness out. God wants the world to know and to see and to be amazed by Jesus, his beloved son gifted to the world to redeem the world. Some Christians resist Jesus' directive to go and tell because we don't know what to say. We lack confidence. We're under some delusion that we've got to have some sort of baseline knowledge or understanding or education or training or some church-affirmed calling or something. But think of what the healed and restored man in Mark 5 had going for him in the way of credentials. Almost nothing. Just this one thing. Just a day's worth less than that of experience, almost nothing. He'd gone from bondage to freedom, from unknowing to knowing, from lostness to salvation, from despair to hope, from misery to joy. That's all he had when Jesus said, go and tell. That's a lot, but not a lot in some ways. Go and tell. I remember, and I think I've told you this before, Tony Campolo is sort of an amazing guy, if you don't know Tony Campolo, ministered for 50 years, uh, largely on the East Coast, but all around the world, uh, Baptist minister, uh, seminary professor, all kind, resume long. And he, he always tells about how 
Uh, he became a Christian on a Friday night, and on Saturday he was out in the streets preaching. Like, what did he have to preach about? He said, I preached on Saturday night about what had happened on Friday night. That's it. And that's enough. And we've got more than that. We've got more than that, and yet that's all it takes. Some of us lack, feel like we have lack the credentials, lack experience, lack some sort of commission. Speaking of commission, this is Mark's great commission. Mark doesn't have at the end of his gospel like Matthew does, this sort of mountaintop experience, going to all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to do likewise, to obey go and make disciples. This is it. This is Mark's go thing to his disciples, crafted and put together in a different way. But this is Mark's saying to the church and to you and me, go. Some of us don't have the confidence. Some of us want to stay in the ship, the fellowship, or the discipleship. Some of us think the world's not going to receive our message, that they're going to reject us, and they will. Blessed are you, Jesus says, though. You will be blessed in that experience. Some of us think that the world, our world, our culture, our day, will think we're not very intelligent. I can't remember Dallas's, uh, Dallas Willard's sort of way of saying this, but he's, it's basically the world today in which we live treats anyone who has faith and lives by faith as being about as smart as a cabbage. And, and it feels that way, that feels true in our world. Some of us went and heard Francis Collins on Friday night, and we're greatly encouraged by his message. He's smarter than every one of us put together in this room. Uh, was the director of the Human Genome Project for many years and oversaw that entire process of mapping the entire human genome. Then for 12 years, he served as the director of the National Institutes for Health under three different presidents. Amazing man. Uh, and really encouraged us that we can have this great confidence. And he said along the way what I said at Easter, and feel like I always say at Easter, that there's more reason for faith in Jesus and his resurrection than there is for not faith in the resurrection. Because there's no other explanation for how things unfolded and how things are today. We talk about leap of faith, but the greater leap of faith, if one really digs into it, even for scientists, the greater leap of faith is to believe that there is no God behind all of the universe, behind the Big Bang, behind everything that is. And so Jesus calls us to go. He empowers us to go. He says, go and tell. And specifically two things. Go and tell how much the Lord has done for you and how the Lord has had mercy on you. I'm going to start with the second before the first. I think some of us don't realize how much mercy God has toward us, specifically in Jesus. Like, I didn't grow up in that place. I grew up in the church, but I didn't realize, I didn't grow up understanding how much mercy God has had for me. How much God has withheld his wrath in his mercy for miserable me. But God has been incredibly merciful to every one of us. Turn and say to the person next to you, God has had mercy on you. Say, God is merciful toward you. 
this is the bent of the holy and righteous and just God. Mercy. Mercy, mercy. Do you know that you need to be forgiven? You need to be forgiven. We're only forgiven by mercy. If we don't understand that God's had mercy on us, we don't understand the depth and the breadth and the, the, the width of our depravity and sin. But when we understand that and God's disposition toward us of mercy, then all of a sudden we do have things to tell. You've got a portfolio of sin that's been forgiven. To say, God, is, I've found mercy in one place in the world, one person in the world, one source for my entire life. Go and tell them how God has had mercy on you. Yeah, you can. No one can refute that. No one can refute that. And then go and tell all of the good things that God has done for you. Our, our world doesn't encourage gratitude or reflection about how good God has been to us. But God has been remarkably generous, good, blessing toward every one of us. We're not encouraged to see that. But I want to encourage us to see that today and to think about very specific ways, how has God been good to you? How has God been good to me? Where would I be without God in my life? Before and after, where would I be? And then to think, this is what I have to tell. And this is what God calls us to tell. Because he wants the world to be amazed at his goodness, at the glory of his son, at the glory of Jesus. So we're going to do a little exercise. Uh, there's a little white piece of paper in front of you. Grab a little white piece of paper. I want to encourage you. Because sometimes uh, when we write things down, when we take action, when we respond, they stick a little bit better or they give us handles to go a little bit deeper. And one of those pens, which you're welcome to take home if you want, a little collector's item pen. And write down two things. How God has had mercy on you and how good God has been to you. How good God has been to you and how God has had mercy on you. And I want to ask you to not put your name on that. And maybe not even to be specific. Because in, in, a, in a moment, Stephen's going to come up and play, and in some our, our reflection, I'm going to put the basket up here, and want us to be able to share those with each other. So be general, rather than, don't put your name. You can be specific, but not in a way that identifies you, necessarily, but uh, somewhat anonymous. How has God been good to you? And how has God had mercy on you? He's calling us to go and tell and share and announce and proclaim those things, just for starters, not a whole lot more. Not your theology of baptism, not the difference between superlapsarian versus infralapsarian doctrine. Not some profound truth. You're not called to be ordained or to be Billy Graham, but to go and share and tell how God has been good to us and how he's had mercy on us. Let's take uh, just a moment uh, to do that in prayerful reflection.